J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. If you are enjoying the Vedic Worldview podcast and enjoying the material, if you're getting something out of it, I'd like you to consider something. This is a completely listener-funded program. If you'd like to make a contribution to the group effort, it would be very helpful. Today I'm speaking with Mark Krasner, who is the founder and CEO of Expectful, an app that makes it easy for hopeful, pregnant, and new moms to meditate. Since its founding in 2016, Expectful has partnered with several universities to conduct research on the relationship between a mother's mind and her baby's health. The company's mission is to make meditation as common as prenatal vitamins. Welcome, Mark. Tom, thank you. It's so good to be here. This really feels like an amazing culmination because Expectful wouldn't have even been founded if I didn't take an introduction course to Vedic meditation many years ago. It had a very significant impact on my life. Mark, one of the things that strikes me, here we are, a couple of guys, you know, I'm over here with my beard and you're over there with your budding beard, (laughs) being preposterous enough to... Expect, you know, your outfit's called Expectful, (laughs) that women are going to take us seriously when really we're a couple of guys. I've had some babies with my partners. As I understand it, you're yet to go down that track. Unmarried man with no children, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) And so, please, listeners, with a grain of salt, we hope that at least our ruminations might be taken as windows into things you could look into. Absolutely. Uh, I'm so grateful that you said that. I think I I can imagine that as you're saying what you were just saying, a lot of eyebrows were being raised and a lot of people were scratching their heads about the fact that two men were having this conversation. Uh, What I'll share with the greatest degree of humility is, is that I'm here today because meditation had a very significant role in completely shifting the way that I see the world. And that led me to find research on the major impacts that meditation could have on the entire reproductive journey. And I got very connected with that research because my mom has struggled with anxiety and depression for most of her life, and especially during my childhood. And that's had an enormous impact uh, on the way that I saw the world before I started meditating. And so I started this company in the hopes that meditation would become a regular practice because I thought for myself how amazing it would have been to have grown up with a mom who had access to meditation, who understood the impact that meditation could have on her life and adopted the practice, um, both for me and for my mom. 
you know, I really wish that it was this tool that you could have been exposed to. It's fascinating because from my side, my preposterousness at being a man talking about <laughs> women having babies <laughs> um, is excused only in the following way, that I'm the celebrated father of nine children. I would love nothing more than for women to listen to some of the ideas that we are exposing and for men to listen to it, but for women to look at all of this and say, okay, that's our subject, guys. Um, we'll take over from here. And I'd love that. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. But, um, you know, again, as with you, the greatest degree of respect, I feel honored to be able to talk about my perspective about birthing, but all of which I have to acknowledge I've received from the graces of the women in my life who have brought children into this world mm -hmm. and my own children, five of whom are boys and four of whom are girls. Mm. So we hope our listeners will get past the obvious and uh, give us a chance to expose them to a few good ideas. And so sitting here, I know that you've recently had your ninth child. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. And I would love to hear from you about your recent experience and what's been coming up for you with this new chapter that's opened up in your life. Well, my wife and I are deeply ingrained in the Vedic worldview. We are always looking for ways to approach whatever our endeavors are in life as much in nature's way as possible. We chose to, and we had the great good fortune of using Marin Green, who has created an organization called Indie Births, and the tagline is Taking Back Birth. So we had guidance from Marin, and we also decided that we'd like to have the baby at home. We had a large tub that held hundreds of gallons of water sitting in front of a fireplace. Labor started at nine o'clock at night and baby was born smoothly with Ariella, my wife, delivering at just before 5 a.m. So it was a nine to five job. And uh, the whole thing went absolutely smoothly. It was Ariella's first child, my ninth child. I'm a veteran watcher of childbirths of my own children. And um, it was fabulous and very smooth. Little Henry is a picture of health, and he had really what Frederick Leboye from the old days would have called childbirth without any violence. It was fabulous. When you're telling me this, Tom, I'm so present to the amazing opportunity that you have and that your son has and that your wife have to, to raise Henry with a lot of consciousness and to raise Henry in an environment of enlightenment. And so... As a father, how do you think about raising Henry in a way that helps him have the best possible take on the world and the healthiest possible perspective? You know, I think that, first of all, I think it's deeply important that the best benefit anybody can bring to their own child is for them themselves to have their personal sense of self, their identity, established in the least excited consciousness state. That consciousness state which is the baseline that we all have deep inside of us. It's not created by meditation, it's revealed by meditation. So letting the mind go regularly to that place awakens that baseline, that absolute level, where the fountainhead of creative intelligence resides in each human being. Experiencing that through meditation twice each day gives the parent stability, 
And stability, I believe, is best measured in terms of adaptation capability. So the parent ends up being able to be super adaptive. One of the things that happens when we have children is there are lots of changes of expectation. People do have a tendency in our world to become rigidly attached to specific timings and specific outcomes of what their parenting and children's experience will be like. And sometimes if things don't go that way, there can be a parental difficulty in letting go of rigid attachment to these concepts. And a lack of adaptation is only going to create stress in the parent. So embracing that fully, which is what I teach to people, I try to practice what it is that I'm teaching to people. I think it's important to, first of all, for the parents to be seen by the children as the examples. They should be, you know, the exemplary for the child of how to meet the demands of the world interactively and adaptively rather than reactively as stressfully. You know, it's a very important thing to understand in this regard that, properly speaking, there are no such things as stressful situations, quotes, unquotes. There are only stressful reactions to given demands. And it's possible to build such a fund of adaptation energy inside your mind and body with meditation that meeting demands successfully, interactively, is a greater probability. And I think that's a very good starting point. There's more than that, but I don't want to overdo the talking when you only ask me a very simple question. Hmm. Having experienced so many births and having so many children, I'm assuming that you've raised and cultivated an environment for many of your children to grow up inside of a state of higher consciousness. Well, that's what my children tell me. The interesting validator there is that that's not simply, I'm simply asserting that I did. My children, who are in a vast age range, from my elder son is 45 this year, and uh, all the way down to Henry, who is 11 weeks, and many in between, they all talk about the impact that their mothers and I had in being able to create an environment where they themselves became fascinated by the idea of meditating. You know, we don't ever push meditation on our children. They see us practicing it. We wait for them to ask. When they ask, and invariably they do, they want to know more about it or learn it, then, you know, we're there to provide it. But just as with anyone, we're not like meditation enforcers, you know, who say, okay, kids, have you meditated yet? Our experience is that children take to it like ducks to water. They start to see for themselves that their behavior range is quite noticeably different to the kinds of responses they see in their peers and contemporaries, their play friends and other school kids and so on. And they very quickly realize that they have, in fact, been raised in a home that has a special knowledge set. Now, my goal as a teacher of Vedic meditation all over the world for the last 50 years has been that this shouldn't be an odd thing anymore. As you said, Meditation for expectant mothers should be as natural an assumption as prenatal vitamins and as unquestioned. Uh, I think that that should be a universal attitude about meditation in everyone. But expectant mothers are a very special group in our society. And, you know, everyone's curious, especially the women of the world are curious 
what did you do? How did you do it? Because pregnancy and childbirth have been made into such a terrifying subject for women. We see movies depicting births and SNL skits depicting births. And, you know, what you see is the classic women screaming and shouting and getting angry with their husbands. And, you know, the most dreadful experience occurred. But, you know, they're glad they had the baby in the end. And I think that, you know, that picture to me is so foreign to what it is that I've experienced and certainly the mothers of my children have experienced that we feel we have a lot to share. For all the women who are meditators, if they conceive, should they be changing their practice in any way, shape or form? Should they continue to do you, I know you recommend 20 minutes twice a day? Fabulous question. Yeah. In fact, from the moment of conception, from the moment of verification of conception, a woman is advised that she may now meditate as much as she feels comfortable to meditate. That means longer than 20 minutes with no upward limit, as she feels, fine level of feeling, go with the charm, more often than twice a day, as she feels. Now, most in my experience will usually take that to mean oh, wow, you know, I can, if I'm sitting in a meditation and I've passed the 20-minute mark, and if there's practicality there, and if there's charm there, I can keep on going. And usually they end up meditating for 30, maybe 40 minutes or something. And it's just like, wow, that was just amazing. So helpful to me. But it's not that more meditation is better. It's that as much as you feel is now permitted so rather than being limited by a system that's designed for, which is 20 minutes twice a day, that's designed for people who are not pregnant, in pregnancy, all the rules change. Right away, go with the fine level of feeling. How long do you feel like meditating? How often do you feel like meditating? You might feel like meditating less than twice a day. If that's what you feel, go with that. If you feel like more than twice a day, go with that. Feel like meditating in the middle of the night? Go with that. In other words, we pull all the rules out. Now, the one thing that we do like to apply is the moment contractions begin, don't meditate until baby's out. You need the stress chemistry. And one of the things we've noticed when you meditate is that blood lactate, it was one of the first findings ever on this practice of meditation decades ago, that blood lactate immediately decreases in concentration in the serum in the blood during the meditation. And so it'll really calm a woman down who's in labor, but she needs that lactic acid in her blood to dilate that cervix. And so she can meditate like crazy right up to labor as much as she wants to, or as little as she wants to. But the moment contractions begin, it's a good idea to stop. Don't try to meditate your way through labor. Allow the labor to occur. And then once baby's out, you can meditate. That leads me to my next question. We uh, actually interviewed your daughter-in-law, Liddy, quite a while ago for our blog, the Expectful blog, and mm -hmm. she talked about introducing her children to meditation. And one of the things that she said was, is that they have their her children, I think from age, I believe it's age four, begin to meditate. And they have, she said the rule of thumb is that she has them meditate for as many years as they are old. That's right. For as many minutes as they have years of age. So... Four-year-olds meditate for four minutes and so on. And that's a, you know, it's a kind of a rule of thumb. And one of the reasons why we don't just, you know, send children into long meditations is that you'll notice a child, if the television's on, for example, uh, they'll just watch whatever's on that screen. 
It might be commercials, it might be garbage, it might be whatever children's minds and eyes or minds through their eyes are easily fascinated until you go and switch the thing off. And then they kind of snap out of it and realize where they are. A child, though they can benefit tremendously from meditation, we do give them a modified meditation technique that doesn't allow them to go all of that deep as a grown-up might do. And the reason is that children could become so fascinated by their meditation experience and so engrossed in it that after a few minutes and you say it's time to have dinner, they might sit there with their eyes closed and wave you off and say, hey, I'm, I'm not coming out of this. It's just so nice in here. And um, there'd be some parents who'd be listening to this who'd say, I want that for my kid. But the fact is meditation and its benefit is meant for action. You draw back the arrow on the bowstring to its silent, most fully drawn point on the bow. And then the purpose of that is to release it and to let it go to its target. When we take the mind into that deep inner silence, we're doing it purposefully so that we can come out of meditation with dynamism and into activity and to really bring the benefits of meditation through our own behavior to society. And so it's important that children are taught that too. And really for a child of four or five or six or seven, then that number of minutes, four minutes, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, is really all it takes for that child to, as it were, draw back the bow, take the mind back to that quiet place and then launch into activity. And what we find is that energy that children have, which sometimes can default to, if they're feeling stressed, it can default to the destructive, ends up instead defaulting to the creative, innovative and inventive. So I also had the pleasure of uh, meeting your son, Charlie's fourth daughter. I met her, I believe, at eight months old. And I was so taken aback by her level of clarity and presence and the amount uh, that she was interacting. And it, it was really a market experience for me because it, re it really stood out as a juxtaposition to other children I met at around that age. Mm. And I was wondering what your experience has been raising your children the way that you have, if you see any kind of juxtaposition between... Mm the children that you've raised in this mindful environment versus what you see uh, in other areas or other, other children? I've watched my own children move into the top end of you know linguistic capability very fast. Charlie himself, my son, who's the father of those kids, Liddy's husband, as a four-year-old was swimming with me in the tropical waters of Fiji once and he had put on a mask and a snorkel and dived five feet down to the sandy bottom. And there was a woman floating around out there with me who was asking me about, did I feel it was safe to have my children floating in the water and all that? And he popped his head up out of the water and said, Dad, Dad, you know, I've just, I've just found a trilobite fossil. This is a four-year-old. And the woman said, goodness, she goes, a trilobite fossil, what's that? He said, oh, it's a simple crustacean from the early Cretaceous period. And there's a four-year-old <laughs> swimming in the waters of Fiji. <laughs> Charlie is not unique in my family in acquiring communication skills at that level. The children, one of the things that I've noticed anecdotally, and of course, this is not a scientific study. This is, you know, Tom Knowles talking about his anecdotal experiences of his children, but it's not uncommon that the children of meditators and the parents of those children report 
that their children's communication skills are absolutely remarkable. And that's important because one of the problems that parents face is not actually knowing what it is the child is experiencing. It's very hard for parents to generate an appropriate response to a child if you're feeling a little clueless about what the child actually wants. And it can create frustration for both because the parent doesn't really understand what the child's wanting and the child doesn't feel the parents are understanding that either. And then, you know, there's a failure to communicate. So I've noticed that children who communicate well also respond very well to guidance, parental guidance, to learn how to empathize. Rather than looking at the behavior of someone that might not be their own behavior, it might not be their own choice, and saying, I reject that, that's not the way I behave. Rather than that, I would ask parents to consider training their children to ask the question, what do you think it feels like to be the other person? Mm -hmm. What do you think it feels like to be them? I want you to learn how to feel that because rather than, oh, that person behaved like this or that in the play group or at school or whatever, and simply rejecting that as in, you know, that's not me, that's not of the self. But to look at that and say, well, I would probably be experiencing that same thing too if I was that child. And so what is my best possible reaction now? And all of my children have heard that topic raised multiple times in their upbringing. And they've made it second nature, actually, empathy. Their go-to reaction to behaviors that are not what their own would be is to, to attempt to empathize and then see what kinds of natural reactions come up on that basis. That's the basis of compassion. I, th I think you can't just say to somebody, a child or anyone, be compassionate. There's a, a step that comes before that which is you can only be compassionate if you can truly understand and appreciate and even perceive what it is that another person might be going through. That sounds like an amazing best practice mm. of asking that question yeah. that somebody could just have as mm -hmm. a parent, and let's say a new parent's at listening to this. That could be a highly valuable thing, a tool that they have to raise their child. Are there any other best practices that you have in mind that you've deployed with your children that have added a lot of benefit to their lives? One of the things that I learned from my master, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he said to be sure that my children know, and that they know this without any doubt, that, quotes unquotes, my job as a parent is to help you, my child, find out what you're best at, and we'll do all the experiments. I'm not going to be asking you, well, you know, you want to be a guitarist, well, how's that going to earn money? rather than asking the children to think like adults about how they're going to earn money, that the most important thing my master cajoled me to make sure my children understood this, I will support you. I'm going to look after you, and this is going to be a team effort. We're going to find out what you're best at. And there'll be experiments before we find it. And uh, when we found it, you won't have to worry about money and things, because that will just naturally flow when you've discovered what you're best at, and I'm here to help you do that. So that rather than the parents coming in like a kind of a jello mold and, you know, inserting the mold on the child's head and saying, you're going to be this, you know, <laughs> you have to be a doctor because doctors earn money, or you have to be, you know, a banker because bankers earn money. And really, you know, there may be some 
faint hint that, you know, you have to do that because you have to figure out how to support me when I'm retired. <laughs> um, you know, the children, instead of that, have an advocate. You become the child's ally and advocate in finding what it is that they're going to be best at. And you're willing to go through all the experiments to do it. And uh, my children all heard that. And they really enjoy, and, and the younger ones continue to enjoy, that reliability of that process, that the parental expectation is simply, give me information about what's working for you. And let's work together. And so when you're raising your children, do you have a belief that there's already something inside them that you're there to unlock, that they come, they come to earth with a special gift? Yes, and I love the fact, I do believe that, and I love the fact that it's a mystery. It's a little bit to me like uh, going to a game of some kind and watching as a, as a spectator. If you knew the outcome of the game, it wouldn't be worth going. <laughs> if you knew exactly what it is your child is here for, what's the what's the joy in that it's like a book with fantastic chapters you know you just want to go through chapter one and then there's some question marks at the end of chapter one and then chapter two and then there's a new set of question marks and some things are resolved and new question marks appear and i love the fact that it's a story that's unfolding each child to me is a story that's unfolding chapter by chapter with perhaps every year being a chapter and, you know, we get to watch this story unfold and it can have interesting plot twists and all kinds of interesting things that appear that you don't know exactly how they're going to all work out. But there is an overall theme, and that is that it is elevational theater. There may be a status quo, there may be a fall from the status quo, then there's a rise into new knowledge and there's a new status quo and a fall from that, the way that all great storylines go. So it's really, it's a fabulous, and it doesn't stop, of course, when they turn 18 or 20 or 30. Their lives continue on having chapter after chapter of fascinating connections and fascinating plot. I just really enjoy that. I love that. And Tom, you know what I'm so present to here is the magic that you seem to imbue in parenting. I love that. And you, you spoke about it earlier, and I think there's a very pervasive narrative happening in Western culture where people do look at it or the common story is, is just something you have to get through and it's going to be really, really, really difficult. And a lot of the focus is put on some of the more negative aspects of it. And I'm really present to how you've changed the narrative is different that you're presenting. And it seems like the whole entire story can shift with the perspective that you're taking on. It's so interesting, you know, Ariella and I and our little boy, Henry, we're just at, here's a plug, ABCV a nice little restaurant in uh, 19th Street in Manhattan, having our lunch just before coming here. And we're sitting there with our beautiful little baby boy, and she saw that he was hungry, so while she was eating, she gave him a little breastfeed, and she continued eating with her other hand, and, and I was there. We were still conversing and all that, and there were some groups of women around us all watching and, of course, getting a bit goo-goo-eyed about the baby. It's natural. And then, you know, looking over and saying to me, the man, were you concerned about, you know, having a baby? I mean, like bringing a baby into this world? And I said, no, the thing is, I think that 
when I look at the uh, worldpopulation.com, which is a great app to look at, it shows how fast babies are landing on the earth <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the most astonishing rate. You know, By this time today, I guarantee you more than half a million babies have been born on this earth since uh, midnight last night. And my attitude is, who's going to lead all those kids? You know, if we all just say, oh, it's a terrible world, I'm not bringing anybody into it, there's too many babies being born already, then we're abdicating a responsibility that we have to bring leaders to the world. And I said this over lunch. I said, if you really think you have something to offer to the world, some knowledge or capability or whatever, we have to think about who's going to lead future generations rather than just saying, I'm not contributing to that. I'm out of here. No baby's coming from me. And perhaps, you know, if you don't feel like you have anything to offer, maybe that would be the correct approach. But I think each of us does, in fact, if we search our inner heart, we'll feel we do have something to offer. And then the next question was, weren't you afraid of how much it's all going to cost? And we both looked and said, what does it cost? I mean, you know, you have a baby. I mean, there's a few diapers involved and a few things involved. And, but... You know, really, uh, here we are in New York City in Manhattan. I'm on a teaching tour. tour. Ariella accompanies me to many of my meetings with the baby. We're just having a ball. So the idea that you have to shut down everything, you have to... And Ariella is a screenwriter. She continues to do her screenwriting work. In fact, she's finding lots of material just in the process of mothering and watching all the reactions of people and so on and so forth. You don't really have to stop anything. You just add one more activity to the bunch of activities you're already doing. And it's a delightful activity if you're willing to see it that way. (laughs) Tom, what you said about people who have something to offer the world to raise children that are going to eventually become leaders makes me think of a story. One of my best friends, Elon, told me. My friend Elon is obsessed with making a huge impact on the world. He has really positive messages to share with people, and he leads courses and workshops and things similar to the work that you do, he's doing in his own way. And what he came down to, he told me, is is that beyond anything that he could do, the most important thing that he could do is love his family, is number one. And I'm so present to that, and I, I think how much people in my life have affected me in such significant ways and how certain situations or moments or decisions I make can literally, and every person makes, can literally have the entire earth look completely different than it does today in the future, in a hundred or a thousand years from now. And I really come back to how loving someone's family and really showing up for a family is one of the greatest gifts or one of the greatest things someone could do to have a positive impact on the world. Yeah, in fact, ultimately... I believe it's the only thing. All of the major problems we have in the world today are problems that either cascade out of prenatal maternity trauma, women being extremely stressed while they're gestating, and then the next part of the cascade, birth trauma, stressed mothers bringing into the world babies who are into a stressed, noisy environments, and, and then a continuation of stress. When we want to know who are the people in the world who are contributing the most to the stress of the world, who are the most rigid, who are the least adaptive, who are those who are not embracing the need for progressive change, which evolution demands of us. And we want to know who those millions are. We look back to the sets of assumptions that are made that parents 
need to, that, you know, these are the wrong assumptions in my opinion, that parents need to be thinking how to get money, how to get land, how to get houses, how to get power, rather than paying attention to the natural process and processes of bringing the next generation lovingly into the world. The number one leadership step that anybody can take is to begin questioning to what extent am I, am I an ideal parent? And then once they find shortfall in that, immediately doing whatever they can do to address that. And skipping that step is going to create a next generation of millions who will be people who propagate that same mistake and create a stressed world. Tom, could you define what you would, the, the, your definition for an ideal parent? I think an ideal parent, first of all, is one who doesn't have all the answers, but knows that if they have that quiet inner awareness that meditation can bring them, that the answer will appear at the right moment, and it will. An ideal parent is someone who has defeated the impulse to become a loving controller. Most controllers are controllers because they think they're being loving about it. But being a loving controller is counterproductive because I do believe that control is opposed to evolution. There is a phenomenon of evolution that's occurring naturally and that if we are afraid that unless I control, evolution won't happen, this is a fundamental human philosophical mistake. Our controlling of things never advances evolution. It only slows it down. And so identifying that loving controller tendency in oneself and then deciding to do something about it, that we don't need to control people's experiences. We don't need to control people's thoughts and especially our children's experiences and thoughts. We need to be in awe of what it is we're hearing from them. We need to learn from our children. Our children are our greatest professors. They absolutely have no guile, not unless we teach it to them. They are guileless. They give us a simple, natural, extrasensory perception of the world. They become a whole new set of senses for us who will reveal to us what it feels like to be an innocent, simple, natural, adorable being who doesn't have preconceived ideas and rigid attachments. And we can learn so much from that. And of course, the guidance that we give them needs to be an offering rather than a set of rigid rules. But primarily, an ideal parent is someone who is an exemplar. There's a word in English that's almost been forgotten because it's so rarely used because there are hardly any of these people left. The word is a preceptor. A preceptor is someone who teaches by precept, by example, that the children see the parents constantly, daily interacting, and children are just, you know, they're vacuum cleaners of information. They just suck it all mm -hmm. in. They're watching all the time. How is my parent dealing with the people of the world? You go to a store, you want a particular thing to happen, that thing doesn't happen. How does my parent react to that? My parent is moving me from one place to the next. Things don't go a particular way. 
to what extent do I watch and see anger or fear or sadness versus adaptability, capability, and so on. So once again, you know, an ideal parent is a parent that uses every tool they can get their hands on to make themselves capable because it is the parent's own behavior that is going to be the the learning book, the encyclopedia for the behavior of the child. And so parents need to be curious and go out, challenge the assumptions they're making about what it is you can know and can experience. And I do believe, coming back to our favoring of meditation, that learning to meditate is one of the greatest things a parent can do because it's going to give them direct access to a a set of consciousness tools that will allow them to be exemplars. Thanks, Tom. Mm. For somebody, for let's say somebody's listening and they're they're pregnant, they're a new they're a new parent, and they have every desire to be the best possible parent that they could be, and they're they're hearing the words that you've just spoken, and yet they feel like they're already meditators, and maybe they feel like they've been meditating and they're still not showing up as parents the way that they want to show up. Are there any other tools that you recommend for people to use that they could do deep work on themselves that help can help them show up as that ideal parent that you've described? My son, Charlie, and I, a few years ago, uh, recorded um, several hours on a subject of raising enlightened children. And uh, my producers are right now in the process of editing that to podcast size so that we can get that up and on the air. It's a unique recording because... It is a father, me, and his grown-up son, who is also a father, Charlie, holding forth on this topic in just a conversational way. We actually didn't plan the meeting at all. We had no bullet points. We had no specific idea how it should go. We just got in front of the mics and began recording our conversation about the subject. And this will soon come out. Raising uh, enlightened children as a topic will come out as one of the podcasts on the Vedic worldview very soon. I'm curious about your thoughts on the differences that a mother and a father play while raising a child and the different roles that that uh, both a mother and a father can impart onto a child when they're raising them. I'm a firm believer that we human beings are in fact, each of us, whether we have male genitalia or female genitalia, we are omnisexual. That is to say there is a mother embedded in every male. There's a father embedded in every female, and there is mothering available in a female and fathering available in a male, who is going to be the arbiter of what's drawn is not going to be either the parent or the mother or the father. It's going to be the child. The child rapidly learns how to access what it needs in mothering, whether it's accessing it from the male parent or the female parent, If it needs mothering, it's going to find out who has it. And it's going to draw from that partner. And if it needs fathering, if it needs something of those traits that we know, you know, we know are kind of loosely in the basket of, you know, the masculine ends of consciousness, consciousness as a spectrum, I believe has a masculine end and a feminine end, and we all embody it. It's just a question of what's being drawn upon, what enlivens that. It's the child who's actually going to be the arbiter of drawing upon those things. And I think that as adult parents, 
we can get ourselves very confused and get our children very confused if we try to reside inside of prefabricated roles. If we try to reside in, I'm the father, you're the mother, you know, I'll provide this, you'll provide that. Actually, what's going to be happening is that the child will determine who's going to behave like what. <laughs> because that child knows what they need and they're going to draw upon that from the parent. Now comes the question, to what extent are the parents resistant to that fact? If we resist the child making demands on us for more of the feminine and more of the masculine because we have a certain body that you know is supposed to determine that, and we become resistant because we're rigidly attached to a role play, we're going to create problems for ourselves and we're also going to create problems for the child. We need to let the child determine from whom are they going to get what, and they're incredibly good at it. As long as we are flexible and let them have access to it. What are the ways in which your children have let you know what they needed from you? If a child is uh, crying and in need of some soothing and comforting and attention, and they may not particularly need food, they might be extremely well nourished at that exact moment, they may not need anything else, they may not respond to, for example, me holding them in my arms and going, shh, 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 now, now, quiet, quiet, quiet. I remember doing that once in front of my teacher. There was a woman who brought her child while she herself was learning her advanced meditation technique from my teacher, Maharishi. I was in India. She was an Indian woman. I offered, because I was an experienced father, I offered to hold her child while she was in the next room learning. The child was crying because mommy wasn't there. I was holding the child in my arms and I was doing my little techniques and dance, you know, dancing around and shush, 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 and singing little things and all that. And the child was beginning to respond to this and quieten down. And then my teacher came out and he said, he watched me for a minute and he said, why are you doing that? And I said, oh, I, I just thought the child may need to be, you know, to quieten down. He said, no, you're trying to change the child's experience. The child feels sad about his mother being gone. Why are you there trying to hypnotize the child not to be sad like that? He said, mother's back now. You can hand the child to the mother. But this thing that you're doing of shush, 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 quiet, quiet, quiet. He said, you know, this is very controlling <laughs> because it doesn't suit you to have a little child crying in your arms. But that child needs to express that. And what you're doing is kind of hypnotizing the child and, you know, suppressing it. And he said, let the child cry. Let, let the child cry a little. And you can be there and be attentive and hold the child and all that, but let the child cry a little. And that was such a learning curve for me, just in that one little thing. My own teacher, who was a celibate monk and had never had children <laughs> advising me <laughs> as a parent how to deal with children, there are so many broad implications in this. Children... Very often parents think that the thing to do is to quieten a child down and calm them. And it may be that the child needs to have an outburst. It might be that the child needs to get something out. It might be that the child needs to just roar down the walls, you know. Um, it's not always the answer that, oh, what you do is you make the child placid. That's not always the answer. But the child will let you know. They don't want to be pacified. They're certainly not going to be able to be pacified. And if they do want to be pacified, 
they'll immediately elicit that in you and they will get you to begin giving them the soothing and comforting tones and the quietening, the tactile kinesthetic sensations in their body, like massaging them a little or cuddling them or whatever they need. If they want pacifying, they'll show you. If they are implacable, they'll also show you that. And all that you can do is confuse yourself if you try to deliver something that's a preset idea. We need to learn that our children are just like adults, except that they are more juvenile in their communication capability. But sometimes that raw, pure, simple communication is much easier to understand than the complexities that grown-ups learn in their verbal communication. Children don't know how they can learn it from adults, but they don't intrinsically know how to be artificial. All they can be is genuine. We just have to be open to that and feel it out. And I think it's important to have the sense, the sense of, we have all the time in the world, you and me. We're getting to know each other. We have all the time in the world. Nothing needs to happen in the next five minutes. Let's, let's find out together what it is that needs to be experienced here. Let's mm. find out together. That sounds like another really powerful part of the narrative that you've created around parenting. I think that it's, it, to me, meeting with so many people and hearing so many stories, it almost sounds revolutionary. It is revolutionary. It's radical. And as against, you know, hey, quiet and write down, sit over there. I'm talking to another adult, which I witness parents treating children to that kind of, which I consider abuse on a regular basis. The parent who does that likely has had that done to them. And they're simply propagating something that came from their own generation. If we do think that's ideal, then we have to ask the question, where's the ideal society that we've created from doing that? It's not there. I think that's a phenomenal point. In looking at the prenatal process and the birthing process, what do you think the biggest changes that Western society would benefit from in that arena? I think that the best thing we can do for a child that's about to come into the world is what we do while the child is still in utero, in the mother's belly. We have to remember a few things that we know about the obstetrics of gestation, of the process of a, an embryo moving into a fetus, moving into a, a child that's just about to be born. First of all, the chemistry of the mother's brain based on the thoughts that she's having, based upon her personal experiences, her brain's producing chemistry. And that's either the chemistry, and we can just enumerate it here, the chemistry consistent with experiencing fear, chemistry consistent with experiencing happiness or sadness or anger. So the three ones that are not so desirable are anger, sadness, and fear. And happiness is a very desirable one for reasons I'll get to in a moment. We know that these brain chemicals then go biological. They go into biochemicals and they affect the adrenal gland and so on. And they cross the placental barrier. That is to say that the child in utero immediately participates chemically in that cocktail of chemicals that the mother is producing. Now, we have signs up everywhere in every restaurant and every snack bar warning women that if they drink alcoholic beverages, it could have a negative effect on their child, even cause deformities. 
or death. I saw a sign like that this afternoon standing here in New York City ordering some food. There's a standard health department sign. Yet we don't have a sign yet that says if you're experiencing anger, sadness, fear, and frustration, <laughs> you could be having you know, a negative impact on your child and its development. It might even cause death, you know, it could cause miscarriage. So though we do know this, you know, the medical view about the impact of maternal negative mental states is extremely well known. We don't talk about it. It's not talked about at all. And so it's considered to be okay for say a woman who is pregnant to be watching a television show that depicts graphic and very believable violence. One of the things I would advise women against, by the way, because the better done the show, the more believable it is, the greater it accelerates the heart, the greater it gets the mind involved in all of the characterizations and the blood and the gore and maybe whatever else is going on or the upset. Her adrenal gland gets active and that baby is now getting a spectrum of adrenal chemicals, catecholamines and adrenaline and epinephrine and cortisol that are making that baby have stress reactivity in the womb. And so when babies are born, they don't acquire their first stresses after birth or during birth. Babies can be already very stressed prior to the first contraction of labor. Now, Another thing for the males, if you want to know what it's like being a fetus inside the amniotic fluid, the water as we call it, it's a little akin to going underwater in a bathtub and holding your nose, holding your breath underwater for a while, which we've all done at some point in our, in our life. And you'll notice that sound is oddly amplified. If, for example, you tap something on the side of the ceramic of the bathtub while you're underwater, the tapping sound is incredibly loud. Water carries sound much better than air does. And so the voices that are around the mother are all heard by the child. If there is, just as an example, and this is a little stereotyped, but forgive me for that. I'm just using the stereotype, but it can be applied outside the stereotype. Supposing there is a male voice speaking in aggressive tones. And those aggressive tones, of course, the language is not understood by the fetus. But what the fetus hears inside the water is, oh, 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 and then if this is upsetting to the mother, then the mother's chemical reaction is immediately shared by the child. Now already the child is developing a premature cognitive commitment to what the sound of that voice means chemically to that child. And the child's already learning to have a stress reaction to that voice tone even without understanding the language of it. So now you're going to have a baby born who is reactive to whatever male voice tones are around based upon the mother's reaction to those voice tones at the time. This is one of the things we need to realize that when we are incubating, gestating a child, it is an incubation. I mean, that child is in the world from the moment of conception. It's already in the world. It's not that we're going to bring it into the world once it's born. It is in the world and it's participating chemically. Almost all five senses are involved in the child's in utero gestation phenomenon. They can see light. They can see darkness. They can see the light penetrating through the mother's 
body tissues, if it's very bright sunlight, for example, they can certainly get all the chemical base. They are also exposed to the chemical function of things that the mother's taking in, whether those are habitual things that, you know, are not helpful for baby's gestation, like drugs and so on, or certain foods. You know, babies are basically, they're just the product of whatever the mother's taking in. The research shows some actually that all five senses are fully functioning by the second trimester. Yeah. So then we need to be aware of this stuff. And this is missing in the broader education of either parents who got into parenting inadvertently or intentionally, whether they intentionally embarked on the process of bringing a child to the world or it was something that they didn't intend but it's happening anyway. Deep consideration needs to be given to what kind of experience we're bringing into the world and do we want to have to start a process right away from birth of almost rehabilitating the child from what it experienced while it was in utero? Or do we want to avoid that and just bring a child into the world who has every advantage? And having every advantage is the obvious choice. But women don't know that they have a choice. Parents don't know that they have a choice. They don't realize they have choices. This is a failure of our education system. What you're talking about right now, when I found this research, it's what implored me to start Expectful. And I'm really aware of everything that you're talking about. I've read a lot of the research that completely backs up everything that you're saying. All the studies that have been done show the outcome of high stress during pregnancy. I'm really glad that you brought up fathers because I think they play an enormous role and it's not just up to the mother to have the healthiest possible pregnancy. And yeah. her partner also plays such a big role in how that entire process unfolds. So I do think it's a real partnership. And the question I have for you is, and something that we've explored a lot as a company is, if you go to Expectful, you'll see that we don't really, we barely mention that stress and anxiety has a negative impact on the pregnancy. And what we've chosen to do is focus on all the benefits that meditation has for the reproductive journey. Because I can imagine that everything that you're talking about is totally factual. And at the same time, I think if a woman hears that during who is pregnant and who might have already experienced stress or just somebody who's about to conceive who experiences high levels of stress in her life, a conversation like this might exacerbate her stress. What are your recommendations for the way to, let's say somebody's listening to this and they're concerned about um, a friend who's pregnant. How do you suggest that people open up the conversation with their friends or with loved ones about the impact that someone's mind could have on their baby? I'll answer from experience. First of all, it does not help to suddenly become an evangelizing loving controller. Nobody appreciates advice given when they haven't sought any advice. And so we cannot go to someone and offer them gems of knowledge that they've never requested. All we'll do is we'll damage the line of communication with that person. However, what we can do, and I'm a great believer then that worthy inquiry is the starting point for giving knowledge, that there has to be some sign of conscious receptivity and a degree of inquiry. But you don't just have to wait for other people to inquire worthily. You can inspire it by being an inspiring person yourself. If you are, in fact, a sufficiently inspiring person yourself, then just as day follows night, other people who need, have need are going to ask you, how did you get to be the way you are? <laughs> and mm. that's the point at which you say, 
well, it just so happens that I do this, this, and this, and these things have helped me. And so it's very important that our first approach to wanting to be a good advisor and wise and trusted counselor of others is self-referral. In other words, I need to enjoy the experience myself and enjoy the wisdom that comes from it, then radiate life for all to enjoy. And if I'm radiating life, I'll be approached. The questions will be asked, just as it was in the restaurant today. You know, my wife and I are sitting there enjoying our little 11-week baby in a big noisy restaurant and looking as cool as cucumbers, you know, about the whole thing and enjoying our meal and all of that. And it's just natural that people who are complete strangers immediately poke their head in and go, oh, such a cute baby. How do you do it? (laughs) You (laughs) You guys just look so calm. You know, how do you do it? Mm. And of course, right there and then we say, well, you know, we both practice Vedic meditation and, oh, that's so great. I've always wanted to do a thing like that. And do you recommend that for people who want to become mothers? And of course you're going to say yes. Mm. And how do I get involved in that? How do you know? So you have to walk the walk. I think it's so important that we are the inspirers of that kind of inquiry, that if what you're practicing is actually worthwhile, people should be able to look at you and see it. If they can't, just have with one glance at you, see that you look like you're different to everybody else, then you probably have some more work to do. (laughs) (laughs) And you need to focus more on building up your own capability as a meditator. And then you'll find that as I said, just as day follows night, worthy inquiry will come. Then it's just a question of responding to people's natural level of receptivity, whatever their conscious receptivity is. But you can't cajole people into a thing. People have to arrive at something with their own natural curiosity and a willingness to learn some more. I think that's such a fantastic insight. What would you say to someone who's out there who just has moderate levels of stress? Like, for example, there's an, there's an enzyme in the placenta that actually blocks the majority of cortisol, which is the hormone that gets produced when somebody's under stress, from entering the fetus and affecting the baby. And also, it show, the reproductive journey has shown that there are points where cortisol plays an important role in the baby's development at certain aspects. It is true. And so for the person who's listening who, who has their mind under in a good state, somebody who's meditating, but also experiences stress on a daily or weekly level, as is quite normal in in life, what would you say about those periods where somebody experiences low levels or moderate levels of stress on a day-to-day basis? To understand stress properly, it is an evolutionary response. The fact that we still have it after millions of years of human evolution indicates that it plays a role. It, In fact, in the process of childbirth, it's a very important point you raise because in order for labor to progress, contractions of the cervix have to occur. And these contractions are the contractions of a major muscle, which is what the cervix is. It's the thing that the baby's head is going to be up against when it has to come out. And that cervix is a, it's a roughly circular muscle, the opening in which has to contract, and that contraction of that muscle requires lactic acid. Lactic acid is in the form of blood lactate, is the chemical that causes our muscles to tighten up or even cramp. And if there's no lactic acid available to open up the cervix, the baby's head can't come out. So when we teach women Vedic meditation, we teach them that the moment they start contracting, they have to stop meditating. 
if they meditate through the contractions, they'll deplete the adrenal reaction, they'll deplete the stress chemistry that's necessary to contract the cervical muscle, and the labor will be longer because of it. You, in fact, do need to have a certain degree of stress in order for childbirth to occur, for labor to be successful, and to be successful at speed. And so it's not that you have to get yourself more stressed, that doesn't help, just the natural stress. What happens is that the baby floating around in the amniotic fluid, at a certain point, it feels like it's getting crowded in there because the baby in, in utero is growing, the fetus is growing. And it grows to a certain point where the crowding effect causes it to have to contract into the fetal position so strongly that it starts to get a little stressful for the baby. When the baby starts to feel that stress, their brain generates stress chemistry, and of course they're urinating all the time into the amniotic fluid. And the urine carries the catecholamines and other stress chemicals that then signal the mother's body to begin contracting, to open up, to let the baby out. So we can't say that stress chemistry plays no role. It plays a very large role, but appropriate amounts of stress chemistry at the right times. So then getting back to a person who is leading an otherwise integrated life, but a couple of times a week, they get a little bit into a stress, bit of stress reactivity. We have to ask the question, well, first of all, it's very hard to measure just from or to determine just from those few stress reactions in a week, what a person's actual background level, their basal level of stress chemistry might be in their body. And there are very easy ways of measuring that, by the way, to measure what your backdrop level, I and mean, you could take a blood test and see what your, how many adrenal products are sitting around in your bloodstream as an ambient backdrop. And it's that that would be the concern, not the occasional stress reaction because the Uber didn't arrive on time or because you made a dinner reservation and they forgot you or something. Or, you know, the movie that you thought you were going to see was canceled or whatever it may be. We're more interested in baseline levels of stress chemistry. What is the backdrop of stress chemistry that's present in an individual? And people who practice meditation regularly, they also will have occasional stress reactions in the face of demanding situations. Mm -hmm but they'll recover fast. See, speed of recovery is the most important thing with stress. Getting yes. stressed itself is not that bad for you, but getting stressed and staying stressed for hours or weeks is bad for you. Everything you're saying is completely corroborated by research, which shows, again, relatively stressful experiences that are short-lived aren't a big deal. It's yeah. chronic stress. If a tiger came wandering into this room who escaped from the zoo and was looking at both of us with its murderous yellow eyes, trying to figure out which is going to be the less <laughs> hassle to eat, I'd be climbing the walls like anybody else. I'd be having an appropriate stress reaction to the presence of a predator. Now, when the tiger departs, suppose there were 20 people in the room, and we're just talking about, you know, hypothetically taking 20 people, put them in a room and expose them to a tiger. Tiger's captured by the zookeeper and taken away. There'd be a broad spectrum of lasting reactions. As a 50-year meditator, I would have gotten over it within a minute, and I'd be dining out on the story for weeks and laughing about it. But somebody else who's in that room might have had such chronic existing levels of stress chemistry that that one major impact on them could cause them to be in post-traumatic stress syndrome for the rest of their life. 
they may never be able to even re-examine the topic to say nothing of dining out on the story. And so getting stressed isn't that bad for you. It is if you recover rapidly from stress reactivity. And it's rapid recovery that is the gift that meditation brings. When you practice meditation regularly, you can still become stressed when it's appropriate to become stressed. But you'll rapidly recover and go back to your full range of capabilities within minutes. Whereas somebody who's already got chronic stress, they have an acute moment of stress spike. And they could stay in that spike potentially for years. And the body just can't take it. It causes the body to age at unnaturally fast rates. Stress and aging are the same word, really. Tom, any thoughts on fertility and in general and how meditation might impact fertility? I have a lot of anecdotes. I can't really say that I've been up to date. You're probably more up to date than me, Mark, on the subject of what meditation and its correlation with greater fertility but the anecdotes that I have, some of them are almost miraculous sounding. One woman who was 47 and who had been told by her obstetricians that she should never expect to have a child and that it wasn't possible even in vitro was not possible for her, uh, simply meditated. She did, in fact, imbibe a bit of Ayurvedic treatment. Ayurveda is a body of knowledge of herbal medicines and self-health care that comes from the same tradition from which Vedic meditation comes from India. And at the age of 48, uh, she and her husband had naturally conceived, and now they have this beautiful six- or seven-year-old child, and there was no need for any intervention or special things. And, you know, the obstetricians absolutely couldn't believe it when they had heard that she had become pregnant. Then they got even more worried and said, oh, my God, it's highly likely that your child's going to be have some birth defects or other problems, and none of that stuff happened. Mm. And I could tell story after story like that, not just about women who are in their elder years of fertility, but women who had been told decisively by medical professionals that it was highly unlikely or even impossible for them to conceive. Just practicing meditation and doing what causes babies to come, <laughs> ended up becoming pregnant and, you know, end up having healthy children. I do think that it stands to reason, and, you know, this is just looking at it from the evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology perspective, that when there's a lot of stress present in the physiology, it does signal the body that becoming pregnant and having children right now is not a high priority. What does appear to have a high priority and someone who's stressed that their chemistry is telling their body that high priority is simple survival. That if you can simply survive, like fight for your life or flee for your life, that will be enough. This is what stress chemistry is telling us is going on. Whatever it is, in fact, that is the stressor, like, you know, Game of Thrones got canceled or something and I was having a party with popcorn and now I have to call everybody and tell them it's not on. And so I'm having a stress reaction. Our stress reaction, irrespective of what the genuine cause of it is, our body thinks that we're being attacked by predators. And our body does have mechanisms that say, okay, not important to do this, not important to do that. It's just important to survive, to continue breathing. And so stress causes, we do know, for example, that stress causes us to dehydrate. 
we either sweat the water out or we pee it out, whichever is the closest, because our body wants to get rid of weight so we can be nimble while we're fighting and fleeing the tigers. But there's no tiger. It's a cancellation of a TV show. Our immune system suppresses. It's not important to recognize viruses or kill them. It's not important to recognize neoplastic disease, cancer. It's now important to produce antibodies against potential bacterial influx. But there is no bacterial influx because there's no tiger biting you. So you have all these antibodies that don't have anywhere to go and they start attacking your myocardial tissue and your connective tissue. It's not important to be digesting food. And so your stomach gets flooded with hydrochloric acid, which then basically disintegrates all of the food products that were in your belly and pushes it down towards the colon for expulsion. It's now important to get rid of feces and fast. And so digestion stops and diarrhea can be a regular phenomenon. Skin, which is normally a certain alkaline-oriented pH value becomes acidic when we're under stress because our body thinks we're being attacked by a predator, and if you're acidic, you're sour, and you may not taste good, and the animal might let go of you. But acidic skin ages at twice the speed of alkaline skin. So without realizing it, we're aging our skin at an astonishing rate. Now, it stands to reason, without my knowing and having read up on any specifics about ovulation and about potential for conception, that stress would be telling the body conception is not an important thing right now. Since it's telling the body that your immune system has to change, your weight has to change, your dehydration has to happen, your ingestion of food is not an important thing right now, basically it's tightening your muscles and getting you ready for fighting and fleeing. It's not the ideal for conception. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no, I don't think any doctor would have ever said to a patient, look, you're planning to conceive a child, get really stressed. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, totally. Even if yeah. they're not savvy about meditation, they're going to say the opposite. I had a really interesting conversation with a reproductive endocrinologist who was sharing that. Yeah, I showed him a lot of research that was out there that shows the, actually the impact that uh, stress can have on fertility. So again, all the things that you're speaking to right now have scientific backing and research shows that when they evaluated 200 couples, or sorry, 500 couples um, that were trying to conceive, couples that had moderate to high levels of stress were two times less likely to conceive a child. So I was having a conversation with a pretty conservative reproductive endocrinologist and he looked at the research and he was nodding his head, but what he, he shared is, is that they did all this analysis on um, people who enter IVF in that process to try to conceive a child. And what they found is the number one people, the number one reason that people drop out, they expect it to be finances because it's an incredibly expensive procedure to take on. But the research actually shows that it's stress that prevents people from continuing to try to conceive. And even just the level of connection that the practice of meditation could create between two people makes it more likely that they'll even continue to try to conceive on the journey that they're on. Pretty much. Stress has an evolutionary value to the extent it allows you to survive predator attack. Other than that, we can find a few places where stress may be helpful, where we have disciplined aggression in sports, which is one place where you could have stress chemistry for limited periods of time as long as you can recover from it and not take it home. It could be helpful. Also during labor, stress chemistry plays a very pivotal role in the process of labor being quick and successful. 
But in the lead up to labor, as regards conception, as regards living your daily life, the fewer stress reactions we have, the better. But we can't just say, okay, no more stress reaction. You see, this is the thing, Mark. People might be listening to this and go, okay, right, I'm, no more stress reactions. What's that going to mean? I can't expose myself to demands anymore. Well, that's not going to work. Unless you have some method, meditation would be the ideal fit for this, but unless you have some method whereby systematically you can reduce your body's excitation levels and come into that deep, deep restful state, and unless you have a systematic approach to that, that ingrains and entrains the body into an adaptive set of reactions. I refer to stress chemistry is called fight-flight chemistry. You either fight for your life or flee for your life. I refer to the meditation chemistry as stay-and-play chemistry. It replaces and succeeds the fight-flight chemistry. So unless you change through a technique, you change your body's chemical base from fight-flight chemistry to stay-and-play chemistry, you can't just mentally decide not to get stressed anymore. <laughs> I mean, if we could all just decide that, we would have done it years ago. There has to be a psychophysiological change in order to have sustained change. I have a specific question about the difference between nature versus nurture. And we've talked about how when a child is conceived that it's coming into the world with a special gift that's there to have somebody uncover um, and it's the parent's job to do that. And what role do you think that nurture plays in the way that a child will come into the world? And how, mu how much of that do you think is relevant in the conversation versus nature? First of all, let me say that my view is controversial, and I love that. I love the fact that what I'm about to say is controversial. That means there's some evidence for it, and there are some people who would say there's evidence against it, though I, I question their interpretation of their data. I think that nature and nurture are the same thing. I think it is our nature to be nurturing. I think it is our nature to spontaneously have adequate responses in the face of demands to be super adaptive if we are not stressed parents. And so what is the nurture? I don't think there's a pre-programmed nurture that is natural. I believe that every child is an independent package of information, knowledge, and potential that is going to make a demand on parents and the parents' capacity to nurture adequately is going to depend on those parents' access to those least excited consciousness states. And so I believe that the nature, the, if you like, the predetermined aspects of the process of a child coming into the world and becoming a functioning adult the nature of that will in fact impact on the parents whose proper nature embedded in them is to be perfectly nurturing given the demands and specific needs of the child, each one of which is unique. And I don't think there's a playbook we can go by that says, do this and you'll be nurturing because that one thing that could be very nurturing to child A might in fact be completely missing the point for child B. And so if parents are not able to have spontaneous right action, spontaneous correct response to the needs of the specific child, then those parents are going to have rigid attachment to a playbook mm. of 
you know, when a child wants this, you do that, and so on and so forth. And those pre-written sets of commandments, if you like, this is what a parent should always be doing, this, 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 and this, I think can end up hit or miss. It'll be right for some kids and it won't be right for others. And so parents have to be hyper-perceptive. They have to have acute sensory perception. They have to be ready to challenge their own assumptions about what a child might in fact need. They have to be capable. They have to be stable and adaptive. They have to be willing to grow, willing to challenge their assumptions. And all of those things are counteracted by stress chemistry. So nature versus nurture, I think, is nurture is one of the aspects of nature. It's an aspect of a parent's nature to be appropriately nurturing if the parent is in a heightened consciousness state. Tom, something that women very often experience in the reproductive journey is miscarriage. One in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. And I'm wondering what the Vedic perspective is when that happens. Is there any kind of spiritual way to look at a miscarriage? Is it viewed in a different way in the Vedas? I think one of the great saving graces of the Vedic worldview, by the way, is largely the Eastern worldview, which, by the way, also includes Judaism, because my friends who are Kabbalic rabbis tell me that although most lay Jews don't realize it, Judaism, in fact, also embraces the idea of reincarnation. And so this is a, a subject which in the West is poorly understood because we've been indoctrinated that your life is based upon you having a body. And then when the body ends, that's the end of life and your life ends. There may be an afterlife, but there's no other earth experience after that. The Eastern worldview largely is that when this body ends, if there has not been the acquisition of that supreme knowledge of oceanic big self, that enlightenment, then there's still going to be a checklist of unfulfilled desires. And then you will return and you'll find yourself in a body and then you'll be born and you'll have a shot at fulfilling those desires. The Vedic worldview about miscarriage is that the soul enters the body of the child round about the four-month mark. Prior to that, occasionally the commissioner of the home, and this is another step in the whole conceptual framework, is that in the Vedic worldview, as I'm told it by the masters of India, is that the soul or this, the individual consciousness that wants to be born has a lot of power. And it rather pulls strings. That is to say, it has the capability to cause the parents to get together even. And perhaps sometimes not even in a way that they necessarily would have willed themselves. And once it's arranged a body for itself, it will move in and out of the body at various points in the lead up to the four months almost like someone who's commissioned a home to be built might walk in and switch on a few lights and see how it works and all that, but not actually move in permanently yet. And then according to that Vedic worldview, the quickening, which is the name for, you know, like you have the quick of your nail, which is the live part, then you have the dead of the nail, which is the part you can trim. And you don't want to trim the quick because too close to the quick and it hurts. So the quickening, which is the unification of consciousness with a body where the body moves in and decides to stay 
happens around about four months, not like sitting with a stopwatch clocking that, but around about that mark. And at that point, the fetus will begin to give the mother very powerful, unmistakable movement kicks and movement and things like that. So then what happens if for some reason the house doesn't provide for the dweller in the house the comforts that it wanted? Well, then that individual consciousness departs and that body without consciousness in it can't sustain. Does it mean that that's the end of everything? Of course not. Depending on the relationship that that individual consciousness, let's call it that soul. In Sanskrit, we use the word jiva. J-I-V-A, jiva, means individual consciousness. We'll re-examine the possibility of being born to those parents, either on the next conception or the next, or it might appear next door, or it might appear somewhere where it will be influenced by that same set of parents that it had chosen. And so Vedic worldview is the same about miscarriage that it is about all forms of human body death. And that is a body ends, a body dies, consciousness can't die. Consciousness is incapable of dying because consciousness is not body dependent. Consciousness is a thing that conceives and constructs a body. It mm -hmm. governs the body. It moves into the body and lets the body be its outlet. But consciousness itself cannot be created, nor can it be killed by a body dying. And so then, though it's natural and human to grieve, it's natural and human, we wouldn't be human if we didn't. At least with that conviction, a mother and a father who have lost a, a baby to miscarriage have a certain degree of comfort that that's not the whole end of everything. Now, with all death, whether it is of an unborn yet unborn child, or if it's the death of an adult, one of the things missing in our Western worldview is any interest in what that soul is experiencing, what that consciousness is experiencing. We feel our own change of expectation and the grief that comes from that. But we very rarely ask the question, what's the experiencer who we're referring to as quotes unquote dead, just because the body's died, what is that experiencer experiencing? We become all consumed in our own grief because we fail to empathize with whatever that consciousness is experiencing. The interesting thing is that near-death experiences, which are, should actually be called death experiences, where there's a register of near-death experiences in the world where tens of thousands of people have described what they experienced when they were medically pronounced dead and then revived and came back to life. I think the world record is something like 18 minutes from the pronouncement of expiration, they almost uniformly report having nothing but bliss experiences when their body died. And then when they return back into sometimes a broken body because the body may have been involved in an accident or something, that's when the pain returns. But in between, when they had a glimpse of what it's like on quotes unquote on the other side of having a physical body, there's almost uniformly either, I didn't experience anything and that's a very tiny percentage, less than 2%, or more than 98%, it was wondrous, wondrous. 
And yet here we are on the earth grieving. Oh, my loved one, my baby, my this, my that, whatever, whoever it is to us. But we're actually failing to ask ourselves, what are they experiencing? They're not experiencing grief. They're experiencing something else. And they're going to return into a body when the time's right. Now, we do need to recover from our grief because just like with any stress experience, the sooner you recover, the faster you regain your spread of capabilities and make yourself relevant to being here on the earth and in the world, bringing your gifts to the world. It is human and natural to get stressed about and to grieve over any kind of death, whether it's prior to birth or full term or of another adult. It's natural to grieve, but it also demands of us rapid recovery. And perhaps a little bit of philosophy might aid us in that respect. One of the most powerful things I've heard in that regard was when I was at a, a personal development workshop and uh, someone was speaking to the moderator of the workshop and she was saying how it was very challenging for her to get over a miscarriage that she'd had about a year before. And what the moderator did is he he said to her something along the lines of, you're up here saying that you had a miscarriage, but I, what I would what I would propose is, is that you didn't have a miscarriage, your body did. This is a very important thing to make a distinction between bodies and consciousness is a very, very important tool for the whole of life. First of all, we need to acknowledge the medical facts. They are that these bodies are roughly 50 trillion cells. About 200 million of those cells dies every day, give or take. And about 250 million cells replace the ones that died today, giving our skin a one-month lifetime, giving our muscles a three-year lifetime, giving our tendons and ligaments a five- to six-year lifetime, giving our skeleton and bones about a seven-year lifetime. In other words, even our skeleton is replaced about once every seven years. So if I'm the body, uh, which part of the body am I? Because this body is a flux or a flow of constantly regenerating and dying cells. But I'm the same me inside here. I'm in my late 60s, but I can remember being 10 very clearly. Yet the body that I had back then and subsequent bodies have expired cell by cell many, many times, I have many bodies since that time, and yet I'm the same me in here. So what's going on there is that the consciousness is reincarnating itself cell by cell on an hourly basis. Every hour, cells die and new cells get replaced, and incarnate means back into the flesh. So to reincarnate is to go back into the flesh. Our consciousness in one body life is constantly reincarnating at every given moment. It's maintaining its consciousness and giving itself little new cell bodies in the trillions. And I continue to be the me inside here. Of course, expanding my sense of what I am as each passing year of experience goes by. And the new bodies that I keep producing, when I look at photographs, they look different as the decades go by. And that's because my consciousness is conceiving and constructing and governing a whole different set of cells. So when a baby body in utero expires, it's not that the consciousness died. It's that that baby body, for a vast variety of reasons, 
most of which cannot really be fully comprehended. That baby body no longer served the purpose for that consciousness that it once did. And so it's a tough, tough thing, very, very tough, particularly for the mothers involved, for the fathers, of course, but more, I would say, for the mothers who have a just a gut-wrenching biological reaction to that. It's interesting in Ayurveda, which is the science that comes along with Vedic meditation of self-health care, a woman's recovery from a pregnancy takes about as long as the pregnancy itself took. So if there's a full-term pregnancy and a healthy child is born, just supposing as a hypothesis, it's going to take that woman's body about 10 months because gestation is in fact 40 weeks, which is four weeks times 10. 40 weeks, 10 months. We say nine months, I don't know exactly why, but it's 10 months. Even with a healthy birth, it's going to take the mother's body about 10 months to recover from having been pregnant and birthing. Now, if a woman miscarries, and she miscarries at four months or five months or six or whatever, it's going to take her body and her consciousness about four or five or six months, however long the pregnancy was, to recover from the phenomenology of being pregnant. Same in a termination. If there's an abortion, then however long the body was pregnant for, that same length of time, it's going to take the body to recover from that loss. And so... It's a very interesting thing that to have accurate expectation can give us reasonable responses to the world. When we have inaccurate expectations, like I miscarried and I want to recover instantly, that's mm. an inaccurate expectation. You know, if we miscarry at six months or something, it's going to be at least six months before even the physical body of the woman recovers. In a full-term pregnancy, women are recovering for the first 10 months after, mm. after birth. I think that's such a beautiful gift that mm. that knowledge can give women, just allowing the process of grieving and allowing the process of getting the body back to where it was and really giving permission for people to feel and experience whatever's coming up for them. I think it's a great message. What do you see as the ideal and ultimate blossoming of the process that you're engaging in? Because the app, Expectful, and the processes of bringing people along into the knowledge base that's unfolding for you and for them, what would be the absolute ideal if you're going to dream, dream big? So what's the big dream? The big dream, right now there's a very short list of things that women do when they find out that they've conceived a child. It's make a doctor's appointment, stay away from certain types of food. If they're consuming alcohol, to stop doing that, to take a prenatal vitamin. And it's my dream that a woman can, when a woman conceives, that meditation makes it onto that short list. And it's just as common to pick up a meditation practice as it is to do any of those other things. Research shows that a woman and families in general are most open to making the biggest changes in their lives during this time. So it's such an amazing opportunity. It's sort of this Trojan horse, you know, meditation. We, we're, the way we share it with women is, is a tool to help them give their baby the best possible start in life because the research shows that. But it's our hope that in the adoption of this practice, women are picking it up because they want to um, do the best that they can for their child, that in that process, their life starts to transform. Mark, from what you've said and also from reading about your company, some research and serious research has been embarked upon that is designed to arrive at conclusions about the impact that meditation will have in pregnancy. 
Yes. We're conducting two major studies right now, one with the University of Colorado and one out of St. Louis University. The one we're most excited about is the one coming out of Colorado that's uh, monitoring preterm birth and postpartum depression and perceived stress and the effect that meditation can have on all three of those things. And what's so exciting about it is, is that there is a study done on 200 women at the University of Thailand less than 10 years ago in which they took half the group of these women and put them in a control group who had, who had no intervention. And the other half of the women took a meditation course and were instructed to meditate throughout the rest of their pregnancy. And the results were that the women who had no intervention had a preterm birth rate that was 50% larger than the women who meditated. And that research should have had enormous waves on the way pre- and postnatal care is conducted in the U.S. Uh, and it hasn't because it came out of Thailand and it was produced in a journal that wasn't very reputable. And over decades, doctors and medical professionals have been trying to make inroads to reduce the rate of preterm birth because it could be so detrimental to a woman and a child's health. And we're doing this very similar research to what was being done at the University of Thailand with our friends at the University of Colorado. And if we're able to produce results like that, even if the results are, you know, a uh, re reduction by 5%, much less 50%, that's the kind of thing that would get very wide press. And it's a type of thing that can actually lead to the type of changes that we're really excited to see, which is the, the adoption of meditation during this very important time of a woman's life. The other study that we're conducting hasn't been done, and it's on a woman's ability to produce milk and help her baby latch uh, with women who have children in the NICU. And so these are very high-risk pregnancies or, or babies that are under very high risk, and a woman's ability to produce milk and have her baby latch could be the difference between life and death. And so if the research is positive in these areas, which there's a lot of evidence that already exists to suggest that it will be, Again, it could have a very significant impact on the way that doctors look about at the adoption of meditation in their recommendation for women who have conceived. It's fantastic, really fantastic. Best wishes with that, and I have I have no doubt that the studies will reveal the obvious. And all that has to happen in that regard is for the obvious to become even more obvious, for groups of medical practitioners to feel as though instead of having just standard varieties of advice to give to expectant women, that they actually have some very powerful arrows in their quiver. Meditation should be one of those. Hopefully, some of the doctors will look at this and they themselves learn to meditate. Because if it is good for a woman who is contemplating conception or who's actually conceived, and for baby, then it's stands to reason it's got to be good for everybody. Speaking of advice, a lot of times we talk about the scientifically proven benefits of meditation because that's what really gets people to act. That's what's moving the medical community. That's the reason these studies are being produced. We found that that's why a lot of women are on the platform in the first place. But it's our belief also that meditation is this practice that gives women access to their own intuition. And from a perspective of decision-making, it's, it's my belief that the best tool that a woman has to make decisions and navigate this journey is her own internal voice, if she can get in touch with it. And that's one of the reasons that my team and I are so passionate about bringing this forward. There's nothing greater than being able to trust your own inner fine level of feeling. Likewise, the flip side of that is not being able to trust your own fine level of feeling and your own inner voice has to be one of the one of the worst things because then I don't trust my own thoughts. I have to get everybody else's counsel. 
and then which ones of those, because they all conflict, which ones of those do I follow? And I don't even have an inner voice to guide me there. Meditation really is the cure for that state and brings about its opposite, which is a feeling of inner certainty, a feeling of being in tune with the laws of nature and spontaneously knowing what's right for me and my baby and what's not. That really is an immeasurable advantage. Tom, one of the things you talk about that's really resonated with me is following things that are charming to you. Does that apply uh, as a parent? I think it does. The real point is it's not universal advice that can be given to anybody. I mean, if there's a heroin addict lying on the sidewalk down there in Manhattan when we leave this building and I say to him, just follow charm, (laughs) he's going to look for his next hit. But for somebody whose consciousness regularly is diving into that unbounded field, meditating twice every day and settling down into that inner quiet state and identifying with that unbounded field. That is the home of all the laws of nature. And for someone who is regularly doing that, they are allowing their individuality to be in contact with that vast inner body of information about how the laws of nature work. And what tends to happen is that the evolutionary process that comes from that consciousness state, that enters into that consciousness state, will indicate what is the right move to make and at what time, based on it either being charming to move or it defies charm. That is to say, there's an aversion to action. And this will even end up guiding the intellect. The intellect may have no particular clue about what I should do or what I shouldn't do, what I should eat, what I shouldn't eat, when I should eat, what times I shouldn't eat, what times I should eat, what activities should I engage in, what activities should I not engage in, what should I say, when should I say, all of these things. Ultimately, what happens to the experienced meditator is that they begin to notice that the path of evolution is illuminated by it being charming to move at a particular time or charming to move in the direction of a particular proposition, a thought comes about, I should go and I should go now, and it feels charming. And what I teach is that if you, as a meditator, you follow the charm, then your intellect is going to rapidly gather data that says, wow, you followed the charm and look what happened. It all worked out amazingly well. Your timing was perfect. The thing that you engaged in was perfect. It brought all of these unexpected benefits. This is part of a philosophy that says that in the stressed mind, thoughts that are not relevant, not relevant to action, they're not relevant to anything, thoughts propagate in the tens of thousands in the mind every day when we are living a life of accumulated stress without meditation. And any one of these thoughts that I have could be acted upon or might not be actionable, might be relevant, might be completely irrelevant. I just don't know. And so one's just being constantly bombarded with thoughts that repeat and repeat and repeat. I was just saying today in one of my lectures with a group of neuroscientists that one of the highlights of studies that show massive amounts of thought activity that occur on average in a person in today's world thinks somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 thoughts every day. But the real highlight of those studies shows that about 98% of the thoughts they had yesterday are the same thoughts they had today. And so this constant repetition of the known. Then how do we break that constant repetition of the known? You learn to meditate 
your mind goes beyond the field of thought. It experiences that deep inner silent state. And then all the stresses get released from the body. And then the mind comes out and it begins having a greater degree of originality every day. So instead of there being, you know, 2% room for originality and 98% repetition of yesterday, you might find that you're in 10% originality and 90% repetition or 85-15. And then eventually 20% of the thoughts you had today are original and fresh and inventive and innovative and creative. And then from those thoughts, which ones are you able to act upon? Well, you tend to be brave about moving toward that which you've not yet experienced. Instead of, I engage in the ever-repeating known because the known feels safe to me, you begin to realize that the ever-repeating known smacks of stagnation. And stagnation attracts destruction from nature. It attracts scavengers, attracts predators, attracts destruction operators. Whereas embracing with confidence and enthusiasm, embracing the unknown, embracing innovation, embracing creativity, embracing that which you've not yet experienced, turns out to be safe. And so the unknown suddenly shifts into the safe space, and the ever-repeating known is seen as the stagnating space. This gives us an eagerness to embrace and evolve and commit to progressive change and to embrace change enthusiastically rather than shying away from change and hiding back inside the ever-repeating known, which is the stagnation zone. This kind of experience is a great description of what kind of changes happen in a meditator. It gives them the strength of, someone might say, well, what do you think about, we'll go to dinner tonight with so-and-so and so-and-so. And And they just feel the fine level of feeling. And if it says yes, they go, yeah, great, let's go. But if the fine level of feeling says, not feeling the charm, then the meditator might say, look, I think I have other things I have to do tonight. And then they might hear back from their friends who all gathered together for dinner that something untoward happened and, you know, they're so glad they weren't there. (laughs) But the fine level of feeling gets confirmation that, wow, I didn't have any intellectual reason for understanding why I shouldn't go. I just didn't feel like it and I didn't go. But look what happened. If I'd gone, I would have been entangled in all this unpleasantness. And here I am. I had another whole set of experiences that were very evolutionary for me instead of that. So then fine level of feeling ends up becoming something you can trust. It can feel for and it's looking for the charm. It's looking for the charm path. And it turns out the charm path is the evolution path. How does that apply to parenthood? In parenthood, it's the same. I might be faced with a child who has skipped school. And I know that they've taken time off school because they didn't feel like going on a particular day and there might have been other things and so on and so forth. Now, perhaps I feel, you know, the need to discipline and say, all right, you know, come on now, show me how it's relevant to be missing days of school when, you know, you've talked to me about your goals and so on and so forth. Do I have that conversation or do I just quietly and wisely, perhaps in this situation, let them, quotes unquote, get away with it, meaning trust that somehow there was something going on that doesn't require scrutiny. No, which way do I go here? Do I call them out and bring them to having to explain themselves with reference to the goals we've discussed? Or do I not apply the scrutiny 
and allow the child to show me that they have a little bit more intelligent control over their daily routines and what they're doing, the answer for me is not going to be, okay, let's measure up the pros and cons. Here's the cons list, here's the pros list. I don't even go there. Uh, what I would do is I would go to the fine level of feeling that quiet place deep inside me and feel, where's the charm? Do I feel the charm in being compelled to scrutinize with the child? Not blame, not accuse, not judge, but just simply scrutinize the moment. Or do I simply allow the child to manage that particular one on its own? There's no set rule that's going to be percolating into the future. This is a moment-by-moment -moment assessment. I always go with the charm, and the charm turns out to be spot on. Whereas if I go with, oh, you know, it's pretty tough, but the rule book says you have to scrutinize, and you know, you have to sit them down, and you have to grill them, and you have to get them to explain themselves and things, and I know it's tough, and I don't like the feeling of it, but I'm gonna do it anyway, it almost invariably turns out to have been the poorer choice if the charm wasn't there. On the other hand, if the charm was there, that I feel like doing that, then I go with the charm. Somebody might say, oh yeah, but then you're gonna be inconsistent. Goodness me, are you telling me that we live in a completely consistent world where there's only one set of responses that are correct at any given time? This is an evolutionary biology world. Every moment requires something different of us to have a successful interaction with the world. Where are you going for your information? Ever repeating known of the past? Did you get all that from an ideal society that you lived in somewhere, these rules? Or is an ideal society, in fact, a society of people who have access to what it is that nature is intending and unfolding in the moment? That's a real ideal society. And my access to that can only come from my own deep inner consciousness field that is based in that home of all the laws of nature, how the laws of nature are unfolding in the moment. That's true present moment awareness. Has there been a time that you've had that feeling of charm that completely contradicted, let's say, the medical institution? Absolutely. Just recently, one of my children had a pain in her right-hand side, which could be appendicitis. And, you know, appendicitis can suddenly flare up and become very bad and require emergency surgery. There's very little you can do to prevent it. On the other hand, it could have just been that she ate something wrong and had a day of vomiting, uh, which she had, and she's a senior in high school. Got graduation day coming up, and I have no doubt there's a little bit of celebrating already starting at the night. Might be a little bit of that. So I just quiet myself down. Are we going to race into the ER on a Sunday night and see if how eager they are to diagnose appendectomy? Or are we just going to kind of take it easy here a little bit? And so charm fell on the side of taking it easy. And what happened was pain resolved, which in appendicitis could also happen. It could resolve. And then I'd felt at the end of about 48 hours, it'd be good to just check with medical practitioner, which we did. Medical practitioner did a few taps and a few standard tests and said, it's not the appendix. Confirmation. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the, the rule book says... If you get that symptom in a child, you race to the ER now. Whereas my fine level of feeling was saying, not gonna be doing any racing. However, if the fine level of feeling had said, go to the ER, I'd have gone right away. Not that I was just defying ER just because 
that's my philosophy. My philosophy is follow charm, don't go with aversion. And where do you think that line is? Because I feel like this this type of um, advice, like I think, holds merit to the degree with which somebody has developed themselves. Correct. That's where the fine line is. That is the line. The line is you can't be a charm-driven person if you are a stress bag who is not respectful to your own body and don't have any stable, absolute sense of self inside. (laughs) Follow charm is just like, well, that's what they're doing anyway. (laughs) They're following charm and creating (laughs) havoc in their own lives and in the world. No, this is something that applies to people who, on a regular, daily, systematic basis, are going beyond thought and experiencing that quiet place and then coming back to action. Then these are the road rules that apply to that consciousness state. How far along do you think somebody has to be in their meditation practice? How many years of meditation? Not very long, probably a few weeks. By a few, I mean four, five, six weeks, 20 minutes twice a day, they can begin experimenting with it. Just like, what would happen if the next five hours, all I did was follow charm? Try it and see. Nothing terrible is going to happen for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) And what would happen then if that worked out, five hours, why not try five days? For five days, I'm going to just follow charm. If the thing's charming, I go. If it's not charming, I don't go. Just see what happens. And it would be even right down to the microscopic. Do I reach for the glass of water or do I not reach for the glass of water? Not because I should, but because do I feel like it? Let's try five days of it. Now, if your consciousness is sufficiently developed, my prediction would be that only good would come from following the charm or not moving if you don't feel the charm. And if it turns out that the results of the experiment show otherwise, more meditation is needed. You continue practicing. You don't ditch the theory. You test it again, maybe after another couple of months of meditating and see when it starts working. But there'll be a point where it's absolutely the way to go. And you can find that out just by experimenting with it. A little bit of experimentation never hurt anybody. I love that. I personally adopted that in my own life since I've heard you speak about it. And there's one very marked circumstance where it made absolutely no sense for me to bring coffee cakes to a Mm -hmm. co-working space that I was in. But I just, I literally left my place thinking, like I had this thought and I'd forgotten it. I literally walked a block and a half back to my three-story walk-up to get these coffee cakes because the urge was so strong. And I remembered your words about following charm. And the, the pre- presentation of a bunch of people at this co-working space led to this incredibly serendipitous event that connected me with somebody that's very important for Expectful, who made all these incredible introductions for us. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful relationship, but it was just, it's been really cool to see. To see it actually having a pragmatic and practical application. Yes. And the notable part about all of that, Mark, is that you didn't intellectually try to figure out in advance why it was such a great idea. You just followed the charm, and it turned out to be like you could look back with with retrospect, and the intellect has the history of it and can align it all and say, wow, that process equaled this outcome. Whereas in advance, the intellect couldn't possibly have had access to this process will yield that outcome. But charm, that is to say, that fine level of feeling which is connected to how evolution's unfolding in that moment, it's already got the outcome in place, And it's just giving you the green light, the little charm signal saying, go for that. And without having to know in advance, you find yourself in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Mm. (laughs) 
Any other parting advice that you'd want to share with anybody that's about to embark on this journey? Women, couples, fathers? I used to listen to my master saying that an age of enlightenment was in the process of dawning right now. That he was talking like this from the mid-70s onward. And he would say, as the light becomes more, then the mess that we've made is more evident too, and we have to clean up the mess. But the fact that an age of enlightenment has commenced is non-negotiable. It's uncompromising. It is not dependent on anything. It's happening. And then he would say, when the age of enlightenment has really begun to dawn fully, that the angels will come to the earth and want to live on the earth. And when I heard him say that, I said to him, Maharishi, um, these angels that you're talking about that are going to come and live on the earth, what, what form will that take? And he said, heaven on earth means that beings with high consciousness are going to arrive. It's the children of the meditators. The children of the meditators, they're the angels that are going to come to the earth. <laughs> this is the angels coming to the earth. This is high consciousness beings coming onto the earth who are going to create a stable and more enlightened basis for the whole of humanity for generation after generation to come. And all of this age of ignorance is going to get behind us and it'll turn into old fairy tales one day that those once upon a time a thing called stress and suffering. And he said, so, he said, it's through all the children of the meditators. That's what I mean when angels are coming onto the earth. That is such a wonderful thought to me that we are helping to foster a new level of creative intelligence on the earth. And I congratulate everyone who is embracing this. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Been a great pleasure, Mark. Mm. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>